You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey, you. Welcome to this very special episode of Sex Gets Real. So why is it special? Well, for the first time in the show's history, we are doing a three-part series of conversations that all began when Eve Rickert, co-author of the book More Than Two, which if you have looked into polyamory at any point or are a part of polyamory community, then you probably know, Uh, reached out to me a couple of months ago. And if you are a part of any polyamory circles or in the sex positive community, you may have heard that Eve and about a dozen other women, maybe more at this point, have come forward about some abusive behaviors and harm that they have experienced from Franklin Vaux. Over the next three episodes, You're going to hear my conversations with Eve Rickert about some of her experiences, then with therapist and kink expert Samantha Manowitz, who specializes in emotional abuse and gaslighting. She is a part of the Survivor Pod, or uh, another word for it would be Survivor Team, that are working to support the people who were impacted by Franklin's harmful behaviors and patterns. And then uh, the third conversation will be with Ida Mandule, who is a person that I totally adore talking to about so many things. But this time, our conversation is about alternative justice processes and community accountability processes. Ida is a consultant in transformative justice processes that the survivor pod for this particular situation has hired. So um, a couple of the things that I am really hoping become revealed over the course of these three conversations are, one, I am learning many of these things right alongside you. So I hold that really preciously. Two, the importance of listening to the experiences of those impacted by someone's harmful behavior. Sadly, what's being revealed with Time's Up and Me Too is how how many of us don't believe an individual when they say this thing happened. We only start to believe it when multiple people come forward and cooperate each other's stories. And that isn't helping us change anything. So I really hope that part of what gets revealed is the importance of listening to people's experiences and trusting them. 
The third thing that I'm hoping gets revealed is why each and every one of us really needs to start asking more critical questions, like uh, who is telling the stories that we're consuming? especially when those stories then become deeply influential in how we structure our lives or do relationship versus who becomes a character whose narrative is is controlled by the storyteller. And I think we also need to really ask what kinds of privilege and power does the storyteller possess versus the characters in the storyteller's stories? I think we need to ask, is the storyteller a cis white man? because that's important. Is it a queer woman of color? Is it a disabled trans person? And how might their access to power and resources and the ways that they're implicitly believed by those around them impact how believable we find them? And of course, that's not to say that the person telling the stories is wrong or a liar or an abuser, but it's important to remember that one person's experience may not reflect the experiences of those in relationship with that person. So if and when the people that are painted as characters speak up, it's important, again, that we listen. And I want to name here that because I have a podcast and you hear from me on the regular, you have heard my version of my relationship with Alex and with others. And the way they experience relationship with me is different. So we might be in the exact same experience, but the ways that we then feel about it and experience it can be very different. And I want to just hold that. I have invited Alex to come on the show and asked if he wanted to be uh, more visible multiple times. In fact, I just asked him a couple of days ago and he says, no, that's not where he wants to be at this time. And he's allowed to change his mind down the road. And so I just want to name that when I share about experiences with Alex, I'm sharing my experience of those experiences, which isn't to say it's the truth. It's simply my experience. The fourth thing that I hope gets revealed is celebrity culture and how easy it is for people to build themselves as experts, especially when they're just sharing personal stories. And I think it's especially important when the people who are in a place where others are listening to them, that we ask, are they prescribing ways of being or are they inviting questions and offering new perspectives that we then get to do our way. And I think that's a really important thing when we're talking about celebrity culture, the seduction of taking someone whose story or book or podcast that we admire and making them into something that they're not. And also really asking, are they telling us here's how to do a thing? Here's how to be in the world? Or are they saying, here's how I've done things. Here's what I've been asking. Here's some other things that I've noticed. And then how do you want to interact with that? That's a very different way of kind of taking up space. I also hope that what's revealed is how common gaslighting and emotional abuse are in our culture and in our relationships. And then finally, I really hope that we reveal different ways of dealing with harmful behaviors 
that don't paint the person causing harm as a monster that doesn't see someone as disposable and ways that we can circumvent the criminal justice system so that we have more options and more input into how our communities are formed and held accountable. I think far too many kink and sex positive and polyamory communities will do something like ban a person from their spaces without addressing how the harm was allowed to happen in the first place. What were the conditions around that person that made that something that could happen and how can we address that? Or communities won't believe someone coming forward about harm because it's either too messy or it's too complicated or it's too scary or the people who are organizing are friends with the person, which then silences the person that's coming forward and saying, I was harmed. And so I hope that these three weeks and three episodes reveal that there is a different way to start being in community and in relationship with each other. And I want to make it clear, this is not just about Franklin Vo. It's about examining power, which is deeply countercultural because we are taught to trust power, not to question or expose it. The structures that contribute to our power. And it's about critiquing the celebrity culture, especially in kink and polyamory spaces and sex positive spaces. And how the problems we see there are reflective of the larger culture we're inside of. I think we all need to ask who has power? Who is making money, prescribing answers and ways of being? Who is centering themselves? Who is keynoting at conferences? Who's being believed and trusted and again centered? I also want to share that there has been, as you will hear later in this introduction and also over the course of the next couple of weeks, there has been tremendous labor on the part of the survivor pod to gather stories, to support survivors, to engage in dialogue with the community at large, to track everything that's unfolding, to craft thoughtful and important messages and updates about the process that they're engaging in. The process, as you'll hear Samantha Manowitz say, has already cost over $10,000. And a lot of the people uh, that are participating in this are doing it from a place of community and volunteerism. And so in each episode, you're going to hear the people that I talk to ask for your financial support. Even a dollar helps in so many ways. And so in the show notes for this episode and the other episodes, and if you go to sexgetsreal.com slash EP261, you will find the link to the Survivor Pod PayPal. And if community accountability and alternative justice are important to you, this is a chance to help support that process in a direct way to ensure that more of these processes can happen down the road. I also am going to share a couple of quotes from the Survivor Pods updates that they've published. It's really important that you go read their updates for yourself. There's some incredible work being put out into this conversation and this process. And whether this whole thing is personal for you or not, because you know Franklin or you know Eve or anyone else that's speaking, there's a lot to be learned in what is unfolding about different ways that we can be in relationship with each other. 
So I'm going to share some of the things that the Survivor Pod has written and put out for all of us to read and sit with. I think that the amount of conversation and thought that they've put into this far surpasses anything that I could just come up with on my own. Plus, I'm not directly part of this process. Um, I've just had some conversations with people who are involved. So I'm going to let them speak for themselves. From the Survivor Pod's first update on February 11th, they wrote, and I want to mention right at the beginning, it says six women. And I believe that that's up to or past 12 now. So they say six women have come forward with stories of experiences with Franklin that do not align with his public persona, his self-described stories of his relationships or the values stated in his writing. These women include all three of his past nesting partners, as well as the women who have featured most prominently in his personal narratives. Their stories demonstrate a pervasive and long-standing pattern of serious harm. They are specific and detailed. They are consistent with one another across decades, and they are supported by written documentation and witness accounts. Evidence and support of the women's accounts can also be found in Franklin's own writing. The women's experiences indicate that Franklin has patterns of manipulation, gaslighting, and lying, leverages his multiple partners against one another, tests or ignores boundaries, pathologizes his partner's normal emotions and weaponizes their mental illnesses, exploits women financially, uses women's ideas and experiences in his work without permission or credit, grooms significantly younger, less experienced, or vulnerable women, lacks awareness of power dynamics and consent, has involved women in group sex or other sexual activities that they experienced as coercive, and accepts no responsibility for the harm he causes by engaging in these behaviors, often blaming other women or the harmed women themselves for that harm. The Survivor Pod update includes some concrete steps that we can all take, and I recommend checking those out. The post from February 11th goes on to say, we ask for the support of our communities in this process. We ask for you to listen to the women, amplify their voices, protect their safety, and ask hard questions when you encounter narratives that appear to define or lay claim to their experiences or where their voices are missing. Many people threw out many polyamorous scenes, including every member of this group and some of the harmed women themselves, have played a role in amplifying Franklin's narrative and expanding his reach. Moreover, Franklin is far from the only person with social capital to have wielded it in harmful ways. Nor are his former partners the only people to have experienced this particular kind of harm in polyamorous relationships. We have collective work to do in naming harm, healing from harm, and learning to do less harm to one another. We hope that this moment can be used to propel forward the hard conversations that will lead to collective healing, accountability, and transformation. What's important to note about the Survivor Pod updates and even my conversation with Eve that you'll hear, none of this is about saying Franklin's a monster, ban him from your spaces, burn copies of his book, he's a terrible person. 
This is about naming specific behaviors, saying that they're not okay, witnessing the harm that happened, and looking at the bigger conditions that contributed to the harm happening, especially harm that's so far reaching over such an extended period of time of multiple decades. And then another piece from that first post at the close of it, the survivor pod offers many people have tried many times over many years to explain to Franklin the harm he has caused and offer him a chance to change with no effect. He has cut off partners, friends, communities, and social groups as a result of having his harmful behaviors named. He has been offered and refused a community accountability process at least once. What we are doing here is not about reforming or changing Franklin or giving him a redemption arc. Our work is not focused on Franklin, nor does it rely on his participation. It's about centering the women he has left damaged in his wake and creating some community change. Nevertheless, we and the women themselves believe strongly that no one is disposable and that a path to accountability, separate from the processes of supporting the survivors, should be open to Franklin. Then on March 25th, the Survivor Pod offered another update, access to some additional documents, I will link to that, and some clarifications on concerns that people had come forward with after that initial statement. And one important paragraph in the March 25th update says, another point of confusion we have seen is the idea that we are attempting to initiate a restorative justice process or attempt to facilitate contact between Franklin and any of the survivors. This is not the case. As of this writing, none of the harmed parties desire any direct contact with Franklin, nor are we trying to restore some quote-unquote pre-harm state, either in individual relationships or in our communities as a whole. Our desire is not only to identify the harm done, but to support the dismantling of the conditions that allowed it to go unchecked and unnamed for so long, as well as the systems and ideas that perpetuated it, and allowed many others to experience similar harms. To do this, we're using a transformative justice framework guided by consultation from Ida Mondule, a practitioner and educator in this field. And then they close their March 25th update with, Franklin has written at length on the idea of disruption, which he frames as primarily a positive force. We are disrupting. The status quo isn't good enough. It's not good enough to have communities that claim to be focused on quote-unquote ethical relationships that are leaving behind trails of traumatized people. It's not good enough to elevate spokespeople who tell us things that make us feel good while looking away from their actual effects on the people they're in relationship and community with. We don't know what comes next, and we shouldn't be the ones to decide. Too many other voices and ideas have been shut out of the conversations about polyamorous ethics for too long. We welcome critique, not just of Franklin and his work and that of the other dominant voices in our scenes, but of our own work on our own ideas. We are doing what we can to help make space for these conversations to happen. So the Survivor Pad has a tracking document full of lots of important posts and updates, interviews, supporting documents for their process, and it's totally worth checking out, um, not only to learn more about how we can all do better, every single one of us, and I mean every 
single one of us can do better. But also because we need to see the care and the labor that's unfolding as a part of this. When Eve reached out to me earlier this year or late last year, I really had to ask myself some questions. We started chatting before the Survivor Pod had published anything, before any of this was public. Eve provided me with her own experiences, and we had a really long phone call, and she shared with permission some experiences and stories from some of the other women who had been in relationship with Franklin. And I had to ask myself, how can we have these conversations without turning it into an attack on Franklin? How do I create the space to hold the messy, messy complexity of conversations like these, knowing they were going to bring up a lot of feelings? But I decided to move ahead imperfectly because we are going to see more and more of these kinds of collaborative processes happening, and they're important. And you're going to hear in my conversation with Ida in a couple of weeks that these processes are not new. They're actually rather old. It's just that a lot of us are new to them, and so they can feel foreign or scary or intimidating. And one of the other things that I'm really acutely aware of is that in listening to Eve's story, in listening to Samantha talk about emotional abuse and gaslighting, many of you who are listening might start realizing that you're either in a relationship that is emotionally abusive, or you might realize that some of your behaviors and the ways you do relationship are abusive and harmful. So this is an invitation for all of us to listen, to feel into our feelings, and to get curious about the places where we contract and constrict to explore what would it mean to do relationships and community very differently. And my hope is that we can ask, how can we start practicing more accountability in our own lives to help set the stage for how we show up in the world? In a Reddit thread that the Survivor Pod started, someone said, we need a new book to replace Franklin's books. And another person commented to that, no new books, no new heroes, read them all, build a support network, build your own ethical framework. Do not do it how any one person tells you how to do it. Figure it out from every possible source, cast down your heroes and be your own hero. I think that this is something important for us to hold to. First, new books new books are just always going to be coming because that's how the publishing industry works. And that's a good thing. Because as we all grow and learn, we need new stories, new texts, new perspectives to help us continue the conversation. But no one book and no one person should be the gatekeeper for how to be in relationship, for how to be successful, for how to be human. It's about community. It's about asking questions and seeking multiple sources of information, and then learning how to trust ourselves within that, and developing really meaningful, deep, deeply accountable relationships with people we trust 
that we can also talk to and co-create with. I also don't want us to think the be your own hero thing is an invitation into this hyper-individualism trap that we kind of culturally have right now to believe that you can and should do it all alone. That just further contributes to the problem. We have to be doing this together with each other and learning different ways of being in relationship, both with ourselves and those around us. I also just want to make a note, Patreon supporters, I'm not offering a new update for bonus content this week. There will be bonus content, but it's really just another place to share all of the links and the resources from this particular process, because I think that it's really important that we spend some time uh, reading through the updates, listening to the other podcast interviews, and really um, diving into what's being offered here. I think that would be more helpful than anything that I could possibly add right now. But we are going to be back with bonus episodes next week after Samantha's chat. And Ida and I recorded a fun little bonus about transformative justice processes that you can get two weeks from now. So still head to Patreon. Uh, Just know that the content itself is really going to be about centering Eve and the other survivors and the survivor pods process. So here is my conversation, the first of three with Eve Rickard that we are going to be having for this series. Enjoy. Welcome to Sex Gets Real, Eve. I am very much looking forward to having this conversation today and having it be a part of a much larger discussion with other folks. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. So you reached out to me a couple of months ago, interested in Um, having a place where we could have a conversation about some of the things that you have personally experienced and been going through. And as part of that conversation, we've also got Samantha Manowitz and Ida Mandalay, who will be also talking about some of the pieces of what you've been going through. So um, I would love to just start with, for people who are curious, can you talk a little bit about how you got here and here being a part of a survivor pod and um, being in these relationships with Samantha and Ida around restorative justice. What brought you to this place? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not part of the survivor pod. I'm, I'm part of a group of survivors and the pod exists to sort of support us, um, protect our safety and also advocate for us and help to elevate our voices. So there, there does tend to be some confusion around that. But wow, how did I get here? Um, so I was involved with Franklin Vo for uh, about five and a half years. We wrote the book More Than Two together. We founded a publishing company together that has published a number of books on polyamory and sexuality. And um, there, in the last, I mean, there were red flags and a lot of stress and and conflict from the beginning. And there was also a lot that was really, really amazing. And, you know, for a long time, we had this incredible creative relationship, like nothing I'd ever experienced. And it just felt like we clicked on a level I'd I'd not experienced with anyone. In in mid-2016, he moved in with me 
um, and, you know, told me that he wanted to be my life partner. And we were like planning this whole life together. Um, and at that time, I also began financially supporting him. And at that point, some of the things that had been, you know, points of conflict and stress for us became much, much worse. And a lot of the things that had been really good in our relationship sort of evaporated. And over the course of the next almost two years, I I went progressively crazy. Like, that's actually what happened. Um, I uh, became more and more depressed. I started uh, self-harming. I was... Uh, in the last year, year and a half, I had almost nonstop suicidal ideation. There were two times when I had, um, you know, pretty major, major uh, mental health breakdowns. And all of this was connected to stuff going on in the relationship. But I thought it was me. You know, I thought that I was just sort of going crazy for no reason and that I sh- all of these things that were happening, I should just be able to handle be stronger and more accommodating? Why are these things such a big deal? And it was only in the last like six or eight months that some people around me say, started saying, hey, you know, he's, he's gaslighting you and pointing out the things, specific things that were happening um, that were gaslighting. And, and then, you know, a couple other people pointed out, you know, he's, he's triangulating, he's, he's telling you one thing and his partner's another thing. Um, he's telling, you know, another thing in public. This is causing, there, there was, you know, I was becoming increasingly isolated from my metamors and from my polycule. Of course, you know, he was telling me secrets about them, about his relationship with them. I felt like I was the only one he could trust. It, that isolated me from them. And of course, now I realize he was probably telling that, doing the same thing with them as well, which is why they, you know, other people started acting more and more weird, weird around me. So um, at the very end, I, and this was shortly after I'd had, um, you know, the second of, of those crises, uh, I realized as I was leaving work that I didn't feel safe going home. And um, so I didn't. Uh, I went to a friend's house and I, I messaged Franklin that I was staying with a friend. And that night I reached out to a woman who had um, been, uh, well, she had been introduced to me as my metamor and I had believed for several years that she was my metamor. Um, I found out in the course of talking to her that, that they had broken up nine years prior and that, uh, you know, she had only ever just wanted to be a friend. And, you know, he continued to use this language partner about her uh, because she was long distance and they only saw each other every couple of years. It was very hard to sort of, you know, (laughs) tease out that there were these different narratives. Um, but anyway, at the time, I thought that she was still a metamor, and I reached out to her, and I said, you know, some stuff's going on, and I was wondering if you could talk to me about your experience living with Franklin, and because she had lived with him before, and she said yes, and um, so over the course of, you know, about a week, uh, I started to learn that, like, all of the things that had happened to me had happened to her, Um it seemed like it hadn't gotten to the level of conflict that it had with me simply because she had ended things sooner. Um, and in a, in a less sort of dramatic way, they just sort of faded out rather than her like leaving. But I also started to discover uh, that there were a number of things that he lied about. Um, I didn't see it as lying at the time. I saw it as like, oh, he saw this differently. Over time, I've come to realize that, that no, no, a lot of this was just actually lying. 
And, um, and so I started reaching out to other women who he'd been with. And, you know, I, I had been very involved in the publication of The Game Changer. Uh, I had edited, edited it. I had published it. Uh, so, you know, I had been deep, deeply, deeply in his, his stories for a very long time. And so this process of kind of unraveling what the other women's experience was, was just, it was really important to me at the time because it was like part of my getting my own grip on back on reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I talked to the other women, the more I realized, oh, this is a pattern. This has happened over and over through the years. These are the exact same behaviors. They're having the same effects. Other women, like it's not weird that I'm traumatized. Other women have been traumatized. Uh, you know, I began to, through therapy, understand what had happened to me as trauma. And and so I was sort of on this this private journey of like you know un- unfolding the, I guess the, the truth and the real history and and something that you know this this woman I'd reached out to had talked about is this idea of like you know in our in our constructions our world constructions there's like certain people who are the the main main characters and everyone else is the supporting cast and it really changes your view of the world depending on who you see as supporting cast and who you see as the main character. And a thing that happens in, in Franklin's relationships and in his polycule and, and, and in all of his public narratives is he's always the main character and everyone else is a supporting cast. Mm-hmm. And so I started really trying to flip that around and say like, okay, what happens if the women are the main characters? You know, what, what is the, what is their experience? What, how does the story look like? And if you, if you really put the women at the center, it becomes a very, very different story. You know, there's, there's this Franklin story that's this like sort of redemption arc and this process of learning and growing and becoming, you know, this more enlightened, skilled poly person. And then you, you flip that around and you say, well, what's the story of the women? And it's, it's the story of like, you know, harm and trauma over and over again. Um, that I'm still, to be honest, coming to terms with. I'm still, um, uh, you know, back in, well, I'll, I'll get to this. Um, but I'll just say that there's still a lot that, that I know that I don't know because I'm not ready to hear it. Hmm. So, um, you know, and in the meantime, I, I was not posting about this publicly. I, I did post a couple of things anonymously that I've since added my name to, but uh, I was, I was str- really struggling to write anything at all. And it was very difficult for me to talk about the worst things that had happened in the relationship. And it, it still is. Um, and I have not been able to, to write about those things at all yet, but Franklin had begun doing, you know, what he has done with every other relationship, which was weaving me into this narrative of his and, and making me into a, a character. And, and in, in his story, um, uh, I had abused him um, because I had had these random, inexplicable uh, emotional out- outbursts. Um, uh, and he was also beginning to, uh, well, not beginning to, I mean, he had been positioning himself as someone who was an authority and an expert about abuse and abusive relationships and how you should deal with abuse, even though he had never received training, never even read a book about it, never been involved in an inter- intervention or anti-violence work. But, you know, he'd heard some stuff from his female partners about abuse, and that was enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it was just a, a matter of, like, and I realized, you know, I looked at how dominant his narratives about his past partners had become, uh, how they, how completely they had been erased. 
I looked at how, you know, everyone he has been seriously involved with has just vanished from the polyamory and sex positive scenes, how his narratives and stories are constantly held up and centered and, and how that's really, you know, a product of like misogyny and Mm -hmm. patriarchy. And, and I was like, you know, I could do what all the other women have done. And it's really, really tempting. I can walk away from this. I can cut myself off from all those circles, turn my back on it, let him do what he's going to do and rebuild my life. You know, I have, uh, I have a job, I have a home, I have friends who love me. I don't need these circles. I can move on. And I made a choice and I just thought that isn't okay. This can't continue. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Part of it was personally not wanting to lose my story and be erased the way the other women had. Part of it was wanting to confront my own previous complicity and erasing those other women's stories. And part of it was just that these are communities that I care about and this is a pattern that's really harmful and I felt like it needed to be addressed. And I also wanted to do what I could to protect other women mm-hmm. because, you know, honestly, if, if I could stop one person, just one person from going through what I went through, that would be worth it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so I started reaching out to people I knew who had experience with transformative justice and accountability work and, and talking about building a process. And we all knew that, you know, we didn't want to center Franklin in that. We didn't want it to be about him making amends or becoming a better person or growing or anything like that. But we also wanted to make sure that there was an avenue for that sort of tangential to what we were doing. And that was, I think, part of everyone's values of, you know, no one is disposable and people can learn and grow from harm. So it wasn't just about like discarding him, but it was really about centering the women's voices and their stories and saying, hey, these are women who have not been heard for 20 years, some of them, and who, who have been remade into, you know, kind of NPCs in this guy's mm-hmm. redemption arc. Like, let's fix that one by like actually hearing these stories and hearing these women and hearing how this fits in this overall picture. And two, let's address the real heart of this problem, which is the fact that, that we that we center men, right? We center men in their stories and we allow women to be become NPCs in their stories and in yeah. polycules and in communities quite a lot. Yeah. So that's, that's where this got started. And it, all, it always was intended to be centering the women's stories yeah. uh, and, and the women's experiences. Um, and hopefully by the time this episode actually goes up, there will be more stories than mine on, on the record. There has been a sort of a backlog in that once the public statement went up, a lot more women wrote in. Mm. And so suddenly there was the work not only of preparing the existing narratives for release, but also beginning to collect all of these other narratives. So there are now... Um, my understanding is that there are about a dozen women who have reported similar behaviors and similar harms. They're on a continuum of harm. Not everyone, you know, experienced trauma. Not everyone was harmed to the same degree, but everyone has experienced, you know, uh, some or, or all of the, the listed behaviors. Yeah. And um, I'll mention Luis's involvement. I reached out to Luisa Leontiedes, uh last fall. And 
originally what I what I asked her about was, you know, some of the women I talked to were extremely eloquent over the phone and told very compelling stories and heartbreaking stories, but they were not writers. Uh, and so, you know, the, their ability to write their story in a way that could be heard and witnessed and, and felt by other people was, I, I felt, limited by their their writing versus their speaking ability. So I talked to Luis and I said, hey, would you consider maybe interviewing these women and ghostwriting some of these stories? And she told me, well, I don't have time. I'm in a master's program and I don't have time for anything except my, my thesis, but maybe this could be my thesis. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about that and, um, you know, consulted with one of the one of the experts we were working with and, and decided that, yeah, you know, this, her thesis was on her master's degree is in journalism. And so, uh, you know, she talked with her, her advisors about that and, and they all decided that, yeah, this could be an appropriate master's thesis for her to do. I don't think she or her, her advisory team really had any idea what she was getting herself into. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that was where it sort of went from, you know, could you interview a couple of women and, and, write up their stories for release to this whole project of like actually really documenting this pattern. And as a journalist, she has taken really seriously the task of corroborating the stories. So, you know, it's not just testimonies, but she can also verify with like chat logs and blog posts and photographs and witness accounts. And, and so to really make sure that, that, that everything that's being, that, you know, she's protecting the women by making sure that everything that is being released is really solidly backed up. Yeah. And, and so when I, when I say that there's a lot that I don't know, what I mean is that around the time that she started that work, you know, I had been sort of on my own investigative path, you could call it, although that wasn't how I saw it. It was more just like, you know, connecting and trying to understand. And I, I sort of handed that off to her at the time that she started the project. And, and since then she's uncovered a lot more and, she and, and the pod have been very careful about sort of titrating information for me. So like, you know, when I learn something new, making sure that I'm at a place where I can process it and then I have time to sort of deal with it and integrate it before I get another sort of key piece of information. Mm-hmm. So for me, the whole picture is still in the process of being revealed, I think. Yeah. So that was long. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, don't apologize. I I appreciate the the vulnerability and and I think what's really important for us all to hold is in a culture that prizes immediacy and solutions. Mm-hmm. The process of experiencing emotional abuse, of being gaslit, sometimes it takes us months or years to even start to think something might be wrong. And then if we're going to be engaging in alternative justice practices, whether that's transformative or restorative justice, Mm -hmm. these are, these are also fairly lengthy processes, you know, in some cases, maybe a couple months, but in other cases that I've, um, that I've seen, it's multiple years of, really doing healing work and really grappling mm-hmm. with ugly, messy, imperfect questions. And, yeah. um, you know, I think one of the things that like our traditional kind of criminal justice system promises is 
if someone does something bad, then we'll find out and then they go away and kind of case closed, we can all move on. But that's not really how it works. It just contributes to more cycles of harm and abuse for all sides. And so, um, yeah, and I think that's something really important too in the values that are driving the work of this pod, which which are also my values, which is, you know, we're not just trying to find someone to punish. We're not trying to find like the bad person who deserves to, to be outcast mm-hmm. or suffer or whatever. It's like, no, we, we need to be able to hold these experiences and these, these experiences should be witnessed. Um, but it doesn't mean that like we're trying to find the bad guy or like impose some kind of sanctions like the pod has no ability to impose sanctions on Franklin (laughs) or to impose a punishment um, outside of the extent to which he may feel that the stories of his ex-partners being heard is punishment and so and plus it just keeps the focus on him again right Um, you know is he guilty or innocent And and it also doesn't make space for the fact that you know he may have experienced harm he has suffered I may have inflicted harm. Uh, it doesn't mean that that I didn't experience what I experienced. Uh, and something that was really pointed to me when he started making his accusations of abuse against me, they happened, first of all, it was when I started naming gaslighting to him. Yeah. And I, I absolutely, at the, for the last like six months of the relationship I absolutely did not ever believe that he was doing this on purpose I just believed like oh if I can just show him if I can explain it to him he'll stop you know he doesn't want to he doesn't want to do this he doesn't want to hurt me in this way he's a good person he just needs to to have the right words used to explain how this is harmful and he'll just you know stop right which Mm. is now I recognize that as part of the narrative of you know someone who was in an abusive relationship <laughs> um, yeah. and that he, he you know and I understand this now is a 20-year pattern that has been named for him multiple well 30 years but you know has been named for him multiple times and has not stopped um, but I didn't see it that way at the time and so you know there was a point at which he finally said he finally admitted that he'd been gaslighting me but then immediately had to make it my fault and so mm-hmm. he started talking about how, well, you have this terrible temper, so I can't tell you the truth because you don't like to hear things that, you know, you don't want to hear. And so, you know, I had to gaslight you because I didn't feel safe telling you the truth. And he actually mm-hmm. said that twice. I had to gaslight you. And, you know, this is sort of overlooking the fact that the lies he was telling me were specifically destabilizing lies. They were not lies that you would tell to, like, keep someone happy. They are, were lies that, like, you know, would keep someone off balance. Mm-hmm. But but just the whole language of like, well, I had to gaslight you. And then once that narrative had taken root, that, you know, his gaslighting had been a, some kind of defensive mechanism, then it was like, oh, well, I was his abuser. And so I didn't have a right to have boundaries. Mm. You know, I had I had to I had to give him what he wanted. I had to keep supporting him. Uh, I had to I had to go to couples counseling with him uh, so that he could tell me all the ways that, that I'd harmed him. And, and, you know, when I would try to say no, when I would try to explain, like, this is re-traumatizing for me, um, you know, this is, this is like, I don't, I don't want to see you face to face again. It was, just, it, it was not, it didn't matter uh, because I was his abuser. And that whole, that whole binary language of like, you know, again, going back to identifying the person, the one person who did wrong or the person who did the most wrong. And then you can say that that person is the bad person and they don't have a right to safety or boundaries or kindness. Like that is an abusive belief right there. Yeah. That enables abuse. And so 
we and the pod and the people involved in this process did not want that belief echoed in any way in any of the work that they did or the public communications or anything like that. Yeah. I think that's a really, really important point that I see get pushed in a lot of ways, you know, especially in kind of these online call out cultures that we're Mm -hmm. seeing a lot right now around Mm -hmm. when someone does something harmful, which is inevitable. We're all human. The level of harm will vary, but we mm-hmm. will all say the wrong thing and do microaggressions and all the things. But then there tends to be this rush of mm-hmm. demands that mm-hmm. happen and uh, n- not a- not allowing for any kind of rest or reflection or mm-hmm. just signing off to take care of self. And I think that that's something that's really important for us to name that mm-hmm. even when someone causes harm and maybe it's really significant harm, mm-hmm. um, maybe it's deep, deep abuse, there's still a human being who deserves mm-hmm. safety to not be threatened yeah. or to experience violence. They still deserve the chance to rest and eat and sleep and mm-hmm. attend to themselves so that they can show up and do the accountability work and really be able to hold big emotions. Because if we're constantly pushing people mm-hmm. and overextending them, then the likelihood that more harm is going to happen is very high. Yeah. Or you're going to get an apology that's just really performative and, and right. meaningless you know, because, because everybody's trying to get back. It's like, just get back to the status quo as quickly as possible, you know? And I remember um, Ida gave a talk on, on alternative justice a year or two ago. And I remember something from that about how, you know, even when people are participating willingly in an accountability process, it often can take them a year or more before they're even able to really process this an impact statement. So, you know, sometimes what's part of these processes is is impact statements where people who have been harmed will will write or will verbalize what happened to them and what the impact on them was. And then the person who committed that harm will be asked to read that and process it. And that it can take a year or more for those impact statements to sink in and for the person who caused that harm to even really be able to offer an apology or to understand the harm that they did. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there there needs to be space left for that. Now, that's not to say that, like, it, that can become avoidance, right? Yes. <laughs> so there yes. has to be a point at which it's like, if a person is just, like, going on with the status quo and, like, I don't know, say, still trying to speak or on the same stuff they spoke or taught on before, like, that should be, you know, they should be held accountable for that. But, yes. but yeah, I think that um, there's definitely a pressure for speed, um, on both sides of things. I mean, there's the, like, I, I do think that if Franklin ever does any meaningful accountability, that that will take a lot of time. I mean, there's a lot of harm to grapple with and some very deep patterns. Uh, and on the survivor side, you know, just the process of getting the stories ready to release is very time consuming, yeah. especially given that, you know, Louisa does want to make sure that everything is airtight. And, and I think it's taking longer than anyone expected, really. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding call-out culture, I mean, I, I obviously, I, I agree with, with most of your points, and I also still believe that there is a place for call-out. Yeah, for sure. But I think, I think that, like, that we need to be really mindful of the way that we do it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that in cases like this where, you know, a person has been offered multiple attempts to address harm privately and has refused them, and where the harm has happened in a really public way, 
and the person is a public figure, especially a public figure who's made relationships part of his brand. Um, You know, all all of this points to, you know, and and this is also a case where a big part of the harm was gaslighting and triangulation that involved telling of multiple stories to multiple people. And so really the only way around that is to get, you know, the things in public. Yeah. But I think everyone was trying to be extremely mindful about the way that this was done and what was requested specifically so as to make use of, you know, what call-outs can do well without reinforcing some of the nastier bits of of what we call call-out culture, which is really, you know, when call-out culture meets disposability culture. Right. And I think that's the important piece. I think that, like, accountability, being able to have really uncomfortable conversations in public and saying, this really hurt. And I want other people who might have been hurt to Mm -hmm. be able to see that it's okay to say, ouch, that hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you're right. Those things are important, especially when it's someone who is continuing to try and center themselves or continuing to profit off of speaking Mm -hmm. about things that are maybe contributing to harm. And being able to hold all of this is is not only complicated, but there's so many feelings that we mm-hmm. need to learn how to be with better, you know, culturally, like yeah. at a large cultural scale, um, wanting that yeah. rush to, to resolution um, not only mm-hmm. creates more harm, but I think it also creates this good survivor narrative that so many of us who are survivors struggle with. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, yes, I'm, yes, I'm still having effects from this multiple years later. And it doesn't just get, yeah. quote unquote, fixed for a lot of people. It's a whole new paradigm. And that takes time. Yeah. So, you know, I appreciate the the work that so many people who are doing alternative justice practices put in because it's not fast. It's not only Mm -hmm. time consuming, but it's resource consuming and it's important Mm -hmm. because we don't want to contribute to the violence of like the criminal justice system and the prison industrial complex. Yeah. 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 And I think that we really need to start building more capacity within our communities. I mean, right now it's good that these, things are being discussed more and that we're trying to bring together more of these kinds of processes. And also it's way too much work falling on way too few people. Yes. Um, and, you know, this is something that even before this, I have been noticing and thinking about, and, you know, Mia Mingus was in Vancouver a couple months ago to give a talk on transformative justice and just blew my mind. Some of the stuff that she was talking about, but um, you know, some, some key points that she made, one is that this work is intergenerational. You know, we're not going to fix it in yeah. tomorrow or this year or like in our lifetimes. That this it's it's incremental and ending violence is going to be incremental and and take generations. And so, like, we don't have to fix it all right now. We just have to make things a tiny little bit better. But also that transformative justice can't just be about the big interventions. It can't just be about like when when harm has reached the point that, for example, this harm has has reached and you have to do like a big process. Like it has to be happening in small ways all the time in our communities. And that means like, you know, we need to learn how to apologize. We need to learn how to resolve smaller conflicts. We need to learn how to come together in groups and work things out and learn how to coexist without like splitting and, you know, splitting our groups and fracturing. And, and that means building capacity throughout the community. Yeah. And I think that something that, that I see still in our 
struggles to learn how to address harm and violence is uh, one, a, a, an over-reliance on experts. Yep. Uh, like we want, I mean, we need experts. We need them to advise us, but but we need to be the ones learning how to do the work. So, you know, ideally the experts would be helping with that capacity building. And two, a, a, an over-reliance on policy. Like whenever there's an issue that I see come up, I see a group be like, we need to make a policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody wants a checklist. Like how can we define the harm and how can we, um, you know, decide who needs to be cast out and punished and like, you know, how, and, and what are the sanctions that we have, right? And it's like, policies and checklists are not going to fix this. Yeah. It's people, it's people having, you know, deep investment in harm reduction and conflict resolution and in staying in community together and in healing over time and building those skills so that we can actually do this more and fuck up less. Yes. I had... Andy Eisenson on the show uh, about a year ago, and we had this fantastic Mm. conversation about alternative justice and communities. And one of the things that Andy said that I have been carrying like so deep in me for the past year and just really thinking about is we have to redefine what we mean when we say community, that too many of us Um, use the word community without really thinking about what community is. And Andy was kind of inviting us to think about how can we create communities where the understanding is, I know you will cause harm and I know I will Mm -hmm. cause harm and I will show up and have your back and hold you accountable with love and kindness, even if it's really hard and uncomfortable. And I know you'll do the same for me. Yeah. And that does take work. It takes commitment. It takes feeling into really uncomfortable things and being able to be there for a while. And those are things that most of us are really, really uncomfortable uh, in. And we get super agitated around just that messy uncertainty. And so I really appreciate Mm -hmm. this, like building of capacity and having a Mm -hmm. deep investment when more of us do that, knowing it's going to be uncomfortable and it might hurt, mm-hmm. what's possible on the other side of that is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that, that episode. And actually, that episode was the, the thing that made me decide that, I, that you were the person I wanted to reach out to about <laughs> this. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the other things that I'd love to just touch on is um, when we were talking previously, you had mentioned that some of the things you've been really thinking about is some of your own accountability and what made you um, easy to gaslight are the words that you used. And, Mm. And one of the things that I talked to Samantha about was how all of us are susceptible to being gaslit because we especially right now live in a political climate and in a culture where gaslighting is done from the highest levels of power and very normalized. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to know, like, as you kind of think about some of the things that you noticed yourself doing, you touched on them a little bit when you were sharing your story. What are some of the things that you've really been thinking about around things you'd like to grow into or do differently or things you noticed that you did that, you know, now you have to really kind of sit with and unpack? What are some of the things that you're kind of chewing on as someone who experienced this harm for so long and really noticed a behavior change? 
Yeah. Um, great question. Um, so I think one of the things I touched on earlier was, you know, this whole keeping Franklin at the center thing. And I did that to an extent that, you know, I, I sort of adopted that framing of like everyone else kind of being an NPC. Uh, mm -hmm. And so like, you know, what that meant was that, first of all, I just, I, I took everything he said as true, uh, which, you know, hopefully you would want to do that with a partner. But when a partner is, is lying to you and you were getting signs that there are things that are not right. Uh, and this is, you know, what happened to me is that pretty early on, there were discrepancies between things that he would say and things that his partner would say, things he would say to me and things he would say in public. Um, and I kept the frame focused on him, which meant that everything around else started to go out of focus and get shaky, right? Because actually he was the one who was lying and these other people were telling the truth. And by not looking at them, by not hearing them, by not centering them in their stories and their experiences and showing curiosity for what they were experiencing, like a total lack of curiosity on my part. Like Franklin was the only person who was really interesting to me. And so, um, you know, at first it contributed to, to conflict and isolation. And then later it, it was part of what made me go crazy because I was, you know, that I mentioned the out of focus and the shaking frame and that got so bad that like things just stopped feeling real because the discrepancy between the stories I was being told in private and what I was experiencing everywhere else and what other people were saying was so great and I couldn't square it. And yet I would not let go of that focus on him. Um, and I would not uh, allow myself to accept the possibility that he wasn't telling the truth. And, you know, it also led to some other behaviors that like they make sense and I understand why I did them, but I also understand how they were really maladaptive and like increased the harm that I experienced, which was if I was getting conflicting input from him and another person, I would experience cognitive dissonance from that. And I would experience the other person as a threat. Hmm. Uh, and so I would, I would distance from that person. I would cut off from that person. Sometimes that included like blocking on social media, which again was an isolating move for me because what it did was it cut me further and further off from the sources of information that I needed to get a, a grip on reality. But it didn't feel that way at the time. It felt like they were a threat. And so, you know, there's that scene in, in Labyrinth, the movie Labyrinth, mm -hmm. where you know, Sarah goes into the maze room and like she's running around and like, you know, um, Jareth is, is singing to her. And like the end felt like that. It was like the, just everything is like all twisty and upside down. It doesn't make sense. And I, and I'm trying to make it make sense. And there's a moment when she just like, she comes to the end of a stairway and she jumps and it all falls apart around her. And for me, that moment when I reached out to that other woman, uh, the first night that I had left my home, that was that jump for me. <laughs> that was like, you know, total leap of faith. I am going to reach outside this whole mess and try to get somebody else's story and somebody else's perspective. And it just, and that was the moment where it all came tumbling down around me. Yeah. And I think internalized misogyny played a big role in that. There was a reason why I was m much more willing to believe a man and to believe that women were, you know, malicious or crazy or lying. So that's definitely something that I have to sort of actively work on 
I have recognized that I hold women to higher standards than I hold men to. You know, I allow men to fuck up a lot more than I allow women to fuck up. Uh, And this holds true both in my personal and professional lives. So I have to be really careful and really conscious about that. You know, so that's another process that I'm undergoing. Um, I would say that recognizing, I think I mentioned this in our our pre-call, that sometimes I think I'm just talking about my own experience and telling my story. I think I I often express a lot more confidence than I actually feel. Mm -hmm. And so people, people see that confidence and they see a certainty in my words that I don't intend to be there. And in that certainty, there is a certain amount of power. And so I think I've held power in telling my stories that I have not always recognized. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something, and, and I think that that is probably true of Franklin as well, although I don't know whether he recognizes it or not. I, I can't say what his experience has been, but certainly when people tell their stories, other people are more or less inclined to listen to them uh, and to take those stories as representative of some kind of greater or truth, depending on what our sort of positional power is. Yeah. And I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, I, last year I, re- I finally read the book, The Gaslight Effect, which is the book that, you know, coined, I mean, I realized Gaslight was the name of a movie, but the person who, who actually turned that into a word that is, refers to a phenomenon in relationships uh, was the woman who wrote the book, The Gaslight Effect. And it was coined in this book. And uh, one of the things she talks about is she talks about the, the gaslight tango, which is that gaslighting is, it involves two people. You have to actually participate in gaslighting to, in this gaslight tango to be gaslit. And the, people can sometimes switch roles in the gaslight tango and, and um, gaslight each other. But one of the things that is essential in both people to participate in the gaslight tango is an inability to tolerate difference. So an inability to say, we see this thing differently and we're okay with that and we agree to disagree. It's like we experience that difference as a threat or we need to feel like we have some sort of agreed shared reality. Now, of course, in an intimate partnership, you do need to have some kind of agreed shared reality, but there has to also be room for a difference. Yeah. And I think that one of the things in my relationship with Franklin was that the first couple of years were so intense and we clicked on so many levels so well and just sort of seemed like we agreed on everything. And when we didn't agree, we would talk and talk and talk it out. And then we would finally be able to like see things, have the same understanding of something. And so I think that created some expectations in me about like that everything could be worked out, that we just needed to talk everything out that, you know, um, mm-hmm you know, every problem could be solved. And, and also when there were experiences of like sort of radically different perceptions of things, it felt like a loss of intimacy because so much of the early intimacy, particularly when we were writing more than two was reliant on that feeling of just like being really solidly on the same wavelength all the time. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, that, that intensity, uh, it's something that other women have described as well with him. So, so I think that because I felt like um, it felt just really, really jarring when we didn't agree on things and it seemed like we had been so good at sort of coming to agreement before, I think I invested a lot in trying to sort of um, 
well, square these different versions of reality, because I was sure that there had to be one somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was sure that, like, and, and again, it was like, now I recognize that actually there were a lot of cases where he wasn't telling the truth, and he was pretty invested in me not finding out the truth, and so that was never, ever going to happen. I was never, ever going to have a story that really fit. Yeah. Um, but I, I wasn't able to tolerate that, and and I mean, this is, you know, I, I say, like, being able to tolerate difference is, you know, it's something that is important in a healthy relationship, but the level of difference that I was being asked to tolerate in this relationship was not healthy, right? Yeah. Like the healthy thing for me to do would have been to leave the relationship at any point. And this has been something that's been really important to me in trying to, you know, process and parse his allegations of harm from me is understanding that like at any given point, there was no choice that I could have made to change the outcome or to stop what happened to me except to leave. Mm. Like the only thing I could ever have done that would have made the situation better was leave. Yeah. There, there wasn't, it wasn't a matter of me needing to have healthier reactions to things except that the healthy reaction was to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate this, this, naming of the inability to tolerate difference. Uh, One of the things that I've mentioned so many times on the show, and I'm going to mention it again, because I think it's so important is, Mm -hmm. you know, the Gottman research shows that um, relationship conflict, 69% is unresolvable. So if we're in relationship with human beings, and I think that includes friendships and working relationships, but being in relationship with another human being means that we're going to keep circling around the same issues as long as we're in relationship Mm -hmm. with each other, because we're fundamentally different. We're fundamentally separate people. And the healthy Mm -hmm. relationship dynamic is being able to say, oh, we're having this thing again about the dishes, look at us, and then to reconnect without needing to resolve, knowing mm-hmm. it's going to come back up again. And I think like that's, that kind of speaks to this of being able to tolerate that, oh, we're having this disagreement again, or we're seeing things differently again, and still being able to connect around that difference, I think yeah. is so important. And also, like you said, sometimes those differences become unhealthy and those are Mm -hmm. times when we really need to evaluate the relationship but um i I think just inviting people to really kind of sit with that and how they do relationship Mm -hmm. and what what their experience is with difference and how you manage that is important yeah yeah so i mean just one more thing that that has come up a lot of course is boundaries and you know my willingness to sort of compromise my boundaries and and of course it was it was much worse in this relationship than it had ever been because I had never been in a relationship with someone who was quite so willing to like push and override boundaries but but I can see how those porous boundaries were always there and of course someone who who has these boundary pushing behaviors is going to sort of select for people in relationship who have porous boundaries that can be pushed yeah so it's really tricky because it's like you know one of one of the most hurtful things that I have seen online in response to the public discourse as well, you know, Eve obviously just had shitty boundaries. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, actually, that's true. You know, I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it doesn't make me responsible for what happened. Yeah. Like, it's not my fault. Like, yes, I, I, 
if I'd had better boundaries, obviously I would have left much sooner, probably never would have dated him because I wouldn't have passed those little tests at the beginning that showed that I had porous enough boundaries to become involved with him. Um, and I wouldn't have suffered this harm, but he's still responsible for what he did. It doesn't make me responsible for him pushing and overriding my boundaries because I allowed it to happen, you know, like, and so I'm, I'm really struggling with that, like holding, like, how do I learn to hold my boundaries better after this experience of having them totally shattered, which now makes me not want to trust anyone at all ever um, versus understanding that what happened still wasn't my fault, that he's still responsible for his choices and his actions, Mm -hmm. especially, and this is where it becomes very helpful to know I'm not the only one. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's been even though I hate that it's happened to other people. Well, I, I want to talk about the witnessing piece as our close. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I just want to tack on to that is I think as a survivor, one of the most profound things that someone ever, ever taught me, which was Christiane Storm from her book, Living in Liberation, which is all about um, boundaries, was... Mm you can set the most beautiful, the most perfect, the most firm boundary and still get hurt, still be harmed, mm-hmm. still have people do bad things. And you can be the most terrible at setting boundaries ever and be wishy-washy and not communicate it well and have great things happen and have people respect what it is that you're communicating. And I think we have this victim blaming narrative that if only we had done this better, bad things wouldn't happen, but that's not how the world works. Mm-hmm. Of course it helps. Yeah. It helps us to have better communication and to tend to ourselves and to be more resourced when we are able to communicate clearly, but it's not our fault when someone chooses to to still do something harmful. Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. Thanks. Yeah. So I'd love to close. I know that at Southwest Love Fest, you held a witness circle with lots of story sharing and witness statements. And I'm sure anyone who has experienced abuse or who is a survivor uh, of trauma knows there's so much power in finding out you're not alone. You're not the only one. Uh, I love when I see memes on social media around the different ways that people deal with anxiety and realizing I'm not the only one who has this funny quirk and dealing with my anxiety. Uh (laughs) There's something that's just so humanizing and permission granting and also really Mm -hmm. validating around like witnessing and being in group with others who can say, oh, yes, me too. What was that witness circle like? And it sounds like part of what's been so powerful for you has been centering the stories of these people who were kind of seen as secondary characters and finding out we have similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, that was interesting because it, was, it, it wasn't really what I had sort of hoped for mm-hmm. um, it, because it was, it was planned very late. Um, it was planned independently of the conference. Um, I planned it for the first night of the con when people were still arriving. So, you know, a lot of people couldn't make it because they had been traveling all day. And then I scheduled it late so that people could attend, but then people were really tired and a bunch of people had to leave early. And so it was, it was in, in my hotel room and it was very small. There were three, um, three survivors 
uh, present either in person or, or digitally. And so it was, we got through some of the stories. We did not get through all of the testimony I'd, I'd wanted to get through. Um, and, and it sort of, there wasn't the, I mean, I, I am so grateful to the people who showed up um, and were present and the people who showed up and tried to be present um, to, you know, especially because a lot of them were people I didn't, I didn't know. At the same time, it was sort of ad hoc, and so it wasn't quite that like moment of like being able to like share my story and community and be witness that I had mm. really hoped for for me and for the other women. But it was still very valuable. Like I mean, it was so like valuable that those people showed up for us. Valuable to hear their their insights. I think even just seeing the looks on people's faces when we told our stories, because sometimes you know I start to think you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't that bad, right? Like maybe, and so when, you know, to hear me say something that I've completely normalized or hear one of the other women say something that, you know, I've normalized because I I know it now uh, and see somebody else's face, like, oh my God, it's like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe this is serious, you know? Um, Yeah. So that was, that was valuable. There were a number of other survivors in the room of other abuse who were able to sort of say like, you know, I see this. So having their seeing and their ability to help pinpoint the patterns and also say what they saw and in me and in the other women was mm-hmm. very helpful. And then it was the first time that three of us had actually come together in a conversation. There have been lots and lots of one-on-one conversations, but having three of us together talking together was really interesting because there were patterns that we were able to see that we hadn't seen before. Mm. So that, that as well, kind of like to have that happen again, yeah. <laughs> sort of, you know, a bunch of, so I, you know, in my mind, I have this like vision of actually like a room full of people who are like, you know, in poly organizing and leadership. And then like, you know, all of the survivors are there and then we all tell our stories, although it would take all day. And, you know, I don't think that will ever be able to happen because like logistically and just the, the time involved, but Every time I tell, I will say that every time I tell my story and have it heard and see someone's reactions, it's very helpful. Yeah. And I think part of the thing that I have struggled with is like, how did this do so much damage uh, when it is so hard for me to name still what happened? And, but it's something else that came up for me in that was the other people in the room who, you know, identified that they were also survivors. I was like, well, why don't, why don't they get witness circles? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Why do, why do I get this? And, and, you know, and they should have this too. And like, who, who hurt them? And can we, and so I, I would like to somehow normalize this idea of creating spaces where people can tell these stories and name harm. And that to me is again, part of the transformative justice piece is like, we're so scared of naming harm and telling these stories. And I think part of why we're scared is we are afraid of disposability we are afraid that we'll be asked to like do something or sanction someone or punish someone. Whereas so often just being witnessed and being heard can be so important and so healing and having your community say, yes, I see that that happened. Yeah. There's so much more that I would love to explore with you, (laughs) but I do want to respect everyone's time. And of course your time. And I know this is a part of a much bigger conversation. So this is just Mm -hmm. the beginning for everyone who's tuning in. We've got two other conversations that are going to help create a really rich discussion for us. Eve, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story and yourself so courageously. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And for, you know, giving me the space to, to talk. Of course. For people who want to stay in touch, learn more, what are some of the places that you'd love for people to visit and check out? So I would, it would be great if uh, folks could contribute to the, the Survivor Pod PayPal pool. Um, people are putting in just huge amounts of labor and there are expenses involved. And so, you know, just kicking in a few dollars to support that would be great. I also am raising money for a separate thing, which is I'm participating in the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's overnight walk in uh, San Francisco in June. And so I have, I've written an essay about that and why I'm, I'm participating in that. And it has to do with my own experiences with, uh, and brushes with, with suicide and, and suicidal ideation. And uh, I have a personal blog, uh, which has a lot of old content on it. I'm not really keeping it very up to date now. Um, and uh, I would say that for folks who want to follow along with this whole process to visit the, there's a, a tracking spreadsheet where the survivor pod is keeping a list of sort of all of the public discourse about the situation. And that's sort of the best place to go to, to get up to speed. Well, I will have all of those links in the show notes and at sexgetsreal.com for this episode so people can donate a couple bucks because having these transformative justice experiences is so important. And so if we can all throw in a couple bucks, it makes a lot of bucks and that's a great thing. Uh, so people can also follow along with with the pod tracking and also contribute to your overnight walk. Thank you again, Eve. Um, I think this is going to get a lot of minds warring and a lot of questions brewing, and hopefully it'll it'll help us all to level up in our conversations around relationships and community. So thank you. Thank you. You used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in a huge thanks to the vocal few the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro find them at vocalfew.com head to patreon.com slash sex gets real to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses as you look towards the next week i wonder what will you do differently that rewrites an old story revitalizes a stuck relationship or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure so don't be ashamed love is a